Well, I don't know how they do it, but our choir just amazes me every week. I say every week, though I am oftentimes, usually, in fact, not with you in physical presence. Uh, Connie and I, Connie is usually here. I don't see her today. I think she heard I was preaching. She was in the nine o'clock service. But um, I am with you through the miracle of the internet and our choir, you just, you astound me week by week. And Adam, I know that the source of that is largely your talent and thank you. We lead up to Easter, beginning with Ash Wednesday through the season of Lent, and by the time Easter arrives, we have been prepared for it. But sometimes after Easter, the celebration of the resurrection passes and we move on to other things without giving the aftermath of the resurrection much attention. Kristen is seeking to remedy that this year and has suggested to those of us who will be filling the pulpit in these next few weeks, scriptures that deal with the disciples and others in the aftermath of the resurrection. So I have been assigned the scripture that we read a few moments ago. So we begin early that Easter morning. In my mind's eye, I see it like this. In the heavenly realms, the Father speaks. It is time. These are words the heavenly host has been waiting to hear. And two of them move from the heavenly realms through the dimensions of time and space to arrive at that tomb sealed and guarded. The Holy Spirit, who cannot be kept out by a stone and seals, enters the tomb and fills that dead body of Jesus. And his lungs draw in a full breath and his heart begins its rhythmic beating. His eyes flutter open, his hand is raised and removes the burial cloth from his face. And the newly alive Jesus sits up on that stone slab where his dead body had lain the angels roll away the stone and the power of God displayed, demonstrated in that resurrection causes the resurrected Jesus to be loose in the world. God's power, dunamis, 
is the word in the Greek, the word from which we get our English word dynamite. God's power caused an explosion in that tomb that morning. An explosion that blew a hole in human history, dividing it into before and after that event. A few hours later, just as the early traces of dawn were demonstrating the promise of daybreak and daylight to follow, the women gathered together and began their dreadful journey to the tomb to finish the process of preparing Jesus' body for burial. That process had been begun Friday night as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, yes, that same Nicodemus who asked, shall a man be born again? How can this happen? Shall a man enter his mother's womb a second time? This Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea began the burial process, but they ran out of time. It got dark, and that darkness began the Sabbath. They had to suspend their efforts. And the women were coming on this occasion to complete that task, one we would not envy. They were suspecting that they would find a body dead three days and their task would not be enviable. They wondered as they went, how shall we roll away the stone? But that was immaterial considering the enormity of the task that lay before them. But when they arrived at the tomb, you know full well, the stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty. They met two heavenly visitors there, and the women immediately began to go back to where they knew some of the disciples could be found. Mary must have lagged behind, and seeing someone she, she thought was a gardener began to query him, what have you done with the body? And when Jesus finally turned to face her, and spoke her name, she realized it was the Lord. Later that day, two disciples, one named Cleopas and the other is unnamed, were walking the seven miles from Jerusalem to their home in Emmaus, a distant village, and they were joined by Jesus, whom they did not recognize. Jesus asked them, why are you so sad? And Cleopas said, Have, are you the only person around who hasn't heard? And Jesus began to explain to them why the prophets proclaimed that the Messiah had to die and would come back again alive three days later. 
But it wasn't until they sat down at a meal and Jesus broke bread that they realized it was he. Whereupon Jesus disappeared from their presence and they got up from the table and hiked back to Jerusalem, don't you know, as quickly as they could. There they intended to hunt for the disciples until they found them. Now, fast forward until the Sabbath is about to end with the approach of the first day of the week when it gets dark. The disciples, as we just read, were gathered in that room, perhaps the room where Jesus and his disciples had celebrated the Passover just three days earlier. But here they gather. And it's a confused state in which we find them. Some are convinced that Jesus has come back. And others are just as convinced that cannot be more than wishful thinking. I invite you, if you are able, to enter that room with me in your imaginations and listen to some of the debate that may have raged. Undoubtedly, it took place. We don't have the particulars, but it must have been something like this. One disciple cites Mary. She is convinced it was Jesus, he says. And another answers, but she didn't even know it was him at first. Can we trust that? Peter, we know from Luke's gospel that he had seen the risen Lord. Peter said, I saw him too. And perhaps it was his own brother, Andrew, who said, I think this is wishful thinking. As much as I want to believe, how can we believe such a thing? I think it was Matthew. There's no record of this, of course, but Matthew was a tax collector. He was a detailed guy, a money guy. I think it could well have been Matthew who said, but, but think about this. If, if the religious authorities went to such extreme to remove his body from the grave, don't you know they're going to be after his known associates? We're in trouble, guys, I'm telling you. Hence the locked doors. Hence the fears. Philip. I think Philip was a very sensitive disciple. Philip, I think it was, who said, I, I, I just can't listen to any more of this. My heart is broken. I, I just can't take this and he begins to sob and so they sit in their brokenness in their doubts in their fears and yet some celebrating what they believed because they had seen him 
We leave the disciples And I have to ask, have you ever been in a similar position? Have you ever been a person hunkered down in your fears? Have you ever been afraid, so afraid of what might happen that it almost immobilized you? Those fears are real. Those who study tell us that most of the things we worry about never happen. But sometimes they do. Someone once said, just because you think everyone is out to get you doesn't mean you're paranoid. It may mean that everybody's out to get you. Sometimes our fears are very real and justified. And we hunker down in those fears because we can't control the future that looms. We don't know what's going to happen. And we're afraid. We fear sometimes because we just have experienced trauma, such trauma that it leaves us fragile, vulnerable, and sometimes even broken. We carry those fears with us oftentimes, though we learn to cope, we're not without them. When I was the pastor of First Baptist New Connie was responsible for leading to faith a fellow teacher. And this teacher's mother came to faith through her. Not too long after she became a Christian at age 83 and joined the church, She made an appointment with me to come and talk, which was not unusual, of course. And she came, and in this pastoral counseling session, she talked about the weather. She made another appointment. She came and introduced me to her family. On her third appointment, she talked about her husband, who had died just shortly before her daughter became a Christian through Connie's efforts. And Connie began to humorously refer to her as my girlfriend because she came so often to talk. And I was on the verge of telling her, you know, I, I just, I don't have time to just sit and chat about things. There are so many other things that I need to be doing, but I didn't. And some visits later, we finally got down to what this was all about. 
I didn't know it at the time until she said, I've been coming to see if I could trust you. I need to tell you something that happened to me. Her mother had died in the pandemic, flu pandemic of 1918, and her father, who worked at the railroad, had tried his very best to provide a secure and happy place for his family, his children, to reside. But this girl was kind of rebellious. And at 16 years of age, though her father forbade her from dating this character, when her father was at work, she went out with this guy. And while they were out, he overpowered her and raped her. As she told me this, she began to sob. Tears flowed like water running out of her eyes, just like someone had turned on a faucet. It was as though she was describing something that had happened days earlier, not more than half a century earlier. She had carried this around inside, locked away, she thought, for all these years. But the truth was, she thought she had locked away that memory, but in truth, the memory had locked her away in its power. As she told me the story and finally purged some of the hurt that she had been toting around. She hadn't told her father because she was sure he would kill the man. She hadn't her husband, who had died just prior to our getting acquainted, as I mentioned. She hadn't told her husband because she was, a fear, she was afraid of how he would react. But finally, she got it out. Sometimes we hunker down in our fears because, well, we're afraid to let people know who we really are. Or at least we're afraid if they do know who we really are, they won't think so highly of us anymore. So we keep things hidden away in fear we lock them out. Sometimes people lock themselves away because, well, they think it's safer for people around them. There are any people who believe that I am a poisonous person. People who get close to me get hurt. Therefore, I won't let anyone get close to me. They keep themselves distant. They isolate themselves. 
They keep themselves locked away, as it were. For any number of reasons, people lock themselves up. Sometimes even churches and church groups lock themselves away. I had written a series of church training lessons, which appeared in the quarterly in the mid-80s. And as I was sitting at my desk at the Baptist Sunday School Board, the phone rang, I picked it up, and it was an irate woman from Hannibal, Missouri, on the other end of the line. I had had the audacity to, in a commentary of Philippians or not Ephesians chapter 4, to talk about a pastor uh, being one who equipped the saints to do the work of ministry which is, most commentators agree, how it should read, equipping the saints to do the work of ministry. The King James Version of the Bible puts a comma in there, to equip the saints, comma, to do the work of the ministry, making it sound like it's the pastor's job to do all of that. Well, I refer to that as the heresy of the comma. She took exception to my suggesting that the King James Version of the Bible wasn't God-breathed and dictated. And even though I tried to explain to her, her a little bit about how the King James Version of the Bible came about, I explained that in the Greek there were no commas, there was no punctuation of any kind. In fact, all of the text was written in capitals without word spacing, which kind of makes interpreting something of a challenge sometimes. But she demanded that I retract this notion that that comma was misplaced in the King James Version. And I told her that I couldn't do that. And she said, well, all I know, if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. <laughs> I thought, she can't be serious. But she was. She was locked away someplace. Our friends, the Amish, locked themselves away in a certain period of history. They've cut themselves off from the outside world. No water lines, no electric lines, no sewer lines. Nothing that comes from the outside to them is allowed. They've hunkered down, as it were. Sometimes churches get anxious about things even Baptist churches. Sometimes when a pastor leaves, a church gets anxious about things. And it is as though these churches hunker down. But return with me to that room 
It's at this point when there seems to be nothing more to say, when gloom has settled in despite the joy some are feeling at seeing him. The prevailing thought is it can't be true. It's too fantastic to believe. And they are filled with a kind of doubt that overpowers their faith. It diminishes their hope. And it is exactly at this point that the resurrected Jesus entered the room without bothering to unlock the door. And his first words were, Peace be to you. And in, in case they missed it the first time, he repeats it. Peace be to you. And now fast forward a week. Thomas, who had not been with them, had been hearing from the other disciples all week long about how Jesus had appeared. And for Thomas too, it was too fantastic to believe. He couldn't quite get his logical mind around that kind of truth. The resurrection was too incredible to be credible. Until Jesus came to meet him. A dear friend who is almost like a brother to me. We are as different as night and day. He grew up in a very, very conservative church, not quite snake handling, but almost. And he got just enough religion to be inoculated. And he is like Thomas. I just can't make it fit my rational reasoning, he says. He would like to believe. He would like to think that after this life, there's life eternal in heaven with God through faith in Christ. He says he wants to believe, but he just can't. Doubt is something that we cannot fully eradicate. Even in our faith, doubts sometimes creep in. So what do we do with doubt? First of all, recognize that Jesus didn't condemn Thomas just because he doubted. He did say, blessed are you, Thomas, because you see and then believe, but blessed 
more blessed are those in future years who believe without seeing. He's talking about us. But when we are sometimes overshadowed by a kind of doubt, what do we do? Well, we take heart. Because to us, in whatever circumstance we are hunkered down, the powerful, resurrected Jesus comes to us, surrounds us, indwells us in the Spirit. The resurrected Jesus comes not condemning our doubts, accepting that we are human beings and doubt is a part of our makeup, but, but he bids us to believe even though we haven't seen. And when we do, we discover an important truth that as we believe, we begin to see. I open myself to the possibilities of God around me. I open myself to seeing God at work around me. And as I do, faith grows. For Thomas, seeing was believing. For us, believing is seeing. So I challenge you, in whatever state you're in, with whatever fears you have, in whatever kind of isolation you find yourself, with whatever doubts may arise, believe. Start with what you can believe and let your faith grow.